Today's sponsor is Bittrex, a cryptocurrency exchange dedicated to security and trust. You'll be hearing all about Bittrex later on in the show. I am joined by Daniel DiMartino Booth, CEO and Chief Strategist at Quill Intelligence. Daniel, great to have you here. It's, it's great to be with you again, Jack. How are you? I'm doing well, Danielle. The times are so interesting. You have been cataloging the slowdown in housing and automobiles. And I'll be honest, this one kind of has caught me by surprise. So I, I need your help in, in catching me back up. I'm just going to read for, from your most recent uh, um, piece from Quill Intelligence. You say, when the dust on the construction sites settles, two words that will not be used to describe the current downturn in residential real estate are short and shallow. So Danielle, tell us what you meant by that. So I think we can, I think most people can agree that housing has been in a recession for most of 2022. We've seen this massive reversal. Um, and in fact, it doesn't matter what you cite, whether you're talking about uh, the National Association of, of Home Builders, we've seen the most rapid decline, including heading into the housing bust of 07, 08, 09. We've seen a more rapid decline in prospective buyer traffic in the headline index for the home builders uh, than we saw back then. Um, what we're seeing in terms of, of single family homes building in the pipeline is biblical. You know, there are 900,000 multifamily units that are under construction right now, a 50 year high. When was the last time you said that's the highest in a half century? I mean, there's just wild stuff going on and it's, the, the, the rapidity with which it's happening. If you look at MBA, the most, the most real-time indicator you can possibly follow on the housing market is every Wednesday morning at 7 a.m. Eastern, you get Mortgage Bankers Association weekly purchase applications. The decline in that index has been twice as fast as what it was going into the last housing bust. This is just extraordinary, and I think the media is really messing up in its coverage of, of what's happening in housing because of the absence of supply. That does not necessarily mean that when push comes to shove, especially if you've got some of your net worth in that house and you've seen your stock portfolio shaved by 25%, it doesn't mean that that seller's not going to sell. It just means that they're less inclined to do, they'd rather age in place. It's a great narrative, they really would. but. They know that they've got equity and wealth in that house and that there's wealth being destroyed in their in their IRA or 401k or whatever, whatever there is in, in, in the public markets. Yeah, I'm just going to rattle off a few stats for the audience, though. So today we learned U.S. existing home sales fell for the eight straight month in a row as uh, the, the most uh, 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 consecutive months of falling since 2007. Uh, mortgage rates are really close to 7%, the highest since 2002. And this one, Danielle, I would not have known this if I didn't read your piece. The uh, NHMC had an index index that fell from 50 to 10. And that, sound, you know, when you hear it fell from 50, I hear, oh, what, 48, 47, but 50 to 10 is pretty big. <laughs> 50 to 10 is pretty big. Uh, you know, the only thing that's, 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 not remarkable about multifamily sales. So we're talking about two individual owners of a multifamily property selling to one another the same way an office building would change hands. The only thing that's not remarkable about the 26% year over year decline in sales is that office sales are down 56%. And again, I've been, this was one of Quill's biggest narratives going into 2022. If your office ecosystem never rebuilds, whether it's work from home, accelerated automation, offshoring of high, um, high paying jobs, all three of which we've seen. But if your office ecosystem never fully rebounds, it looks like we're going to see this castle with a K data top out somewhere around 50%. Then the multifamily urban, you know, mm. um, community. I mean, we, I used to, Two years ago, I was counting cranes, Jack, counting cranes in Seattle, counting cranes in New York. You would count cranes to see where there was going to be the most development, where residential real estate as a whole, because multifamily pours into that for the GDP, was going to be the most additive, which section of the country. Now it's like you're trying to figure out how many large, tall structures were overbuilt to supply an office ecosystem that's not recovering. How much of this slowdown in housing, Danielle, do you think would have happened by itself? 
or uh, versus it is in a sense you know man-made by by Jay Powell because rates have gone from zero to three percent and mortgage rates have gone from three percent to seven percent uh, reacting to that uh, so, so some people say oh the, what the Fed does doesn't matter but uh, what I'm seeing I think it definitely plays a pretty big impact <laughs> well first of all the Fed in the same way that the Fed created the subprime crisis, you know, Jim Grant's always famously said the Fed is both arsonist and firefighter. But the Fed didn't have to buy up a third of the mortgage-backed securities market and and keep interest rates at the zero bound, which put lots of levered money into investors' hands. Remember, a third of all housing transactions in 2021 were investors. So the Fed didn't have to set the monetary policy that allowed for the speculation gone wild that created the bubble that's now deflating because it's raising interest rates so aggressively and so quickly. So they, they're just, it's like Frankenstein on steroids. Where, where do you think this, this shakes out? Because I know that the quality of mortgages in terms of credit worthiness is much higher. So, you know, if, if the FICOs in 2006 and 2007 were in the 500s, now they're in the 700s. So, People are, you know, delinquencies should be lower. And, you know, it's, it's a fact that the credit worthiness is at least reported to be much, much higher. But how much does that matter if the mortgage rates uh, have gone up so much? Uh, it, it seems more like a, uh, a, a crisis within the mortgage origination market because everything is frozen rather than like a meltdown of sort of people not paying off their loans. So you're right. We, we don't have, uh, there's a lot more home equity that's been built up. There's a lot more wealth in housing. So you, you don't have as many, uh, you, we're, we're not talking about this, this kind of epidemic of underwater mortgages, you know, people who owe more on their mortgage than what the house is worth. That being said, uh, you know, I'm hearing anecdotes that there are issues with getting appraisals. The appraisers are no longer playing ball. They're not setting prices where, they need to be in order to transact. And, and I'm even starting to hear anecdotes about negative equity. Remember, people bought in at the very, very peak. A lot of them did so with FHA mortgages, only 3.5% down payment. You don't have to move the needle a lot in order to be in trouble. So you're right. On a fundamental level, we are not staring down the barrel of 10 million plus foreclosures coming up. But there will be a foreclosure rate. There will also be foreclosures based on property taxes that are going to be so high for so many homeowners who've been in their homes for a long time, who own their homes outright, retirees on fixed incomes. They're going to get these massive bills. They're not going to know what to do with them. And we saw this phenomenon. We saw property tax foreclosures in the last downturn. We've just forgotten about them. But so there, there, there will be... And, you know, when somebody like Wells Fargo comes out and says, expect home prices to continue falling through 2023, I mean, that's a pretty decent source. And they're better off if home prices don't fall because they're one of the biggest mortgage lenders on the planet. So in, in that sense, you really have to pay attention when it's not just Danielle saying you know, housing's in the pisser, when there are other established outfits. And I'll add one more thing. Yeah. I don't think we've seen as much downside in housing because sellers are standing pat. Mm -hmm. So we forget how comps work. Comps work. All you need is one or two in a neighborhood to trade hands at a price that has nothing to do with what it was a few months ago when homes stopped selling. And what we are seeing is the days on the market increase. And the fastest and most dramatic decline that we're seeing is in million dollar plus homes. Oh, really? I didn't know that. Yep, that's in tomorrow's feather. Uh, and, and that, again, that goes back to the fact that so many people have so much wealth that's in their home. And especially if it's a high-end home, that means that they're the same cohort of individuals who own stocks. And a lot of them have two homes. And the most dramatic area of decline we have seen is in second home sales. That was the canary in the coal mine. That's what started this whole housing recession was second home sales collapsing. And that's continued to occur. So, so housing is an interest uh, rate sensitive market. So interest rates have exploded higher. We've seen a very rapid slowdown that you uh, have uh, been tracking earlier than a lot of people. Another market is auto. 
what are you seeing in the auto market? I know you're you're seeing some things that have me very worried. Okay, so so first of all, of all people, Goldman Sachs got together with Moody's and did a study earlier this year that showed that because of all the forbearance and the fact that you really didn't have to make a car payment for a couple of years, you haven't had to pay your student loan payments for a couple of years, there's been this massive FICO inflation and that we cannot rely on FICO scores the way that we did a cycle ago because somebody pushed pause on households' obligations. So we just need to clear that up from when we were talking about housing because it applies in spades to cars. Right. So when when the pandemic first struck, lenders were quietly told to substitute traditional income verification with has this potential buyer who wants to finance a vehicle received a stimulus check. If you can check that box, yes, then they can have financing for a car. By the way, once you sell them the car, you can't collect a payment. So here's an anecdote. I'm getting ready to go on stage in New Orleans last weekend. I'm having somebody put my fake eyelashes on. I could never do that in a million years, Jack. Neither could you. Oh, no. She's, she's just chit-chatting with me. Oh, you, I remember you from a year ago. You're that economist woman, aren't you? And I'm like, yeah. And she's like, you know, one of my best friends works at a bank. And, you know, it, it's, it's funny because she's telling me that all, all of these car loans that they have – they're, you know, 18, 24 months old. They've never made a single payment and they're, ha they're having real trouble. And now they're going to have to start repossessing cars. And I'm like, you don't say. Now, this is just somebody off the street, so to speak. Another wrinkle in cars outside of the fact that if you could fog a mirror, you could buy a home last cycle. If you could fog a mirror, now you could buy a car this cycle. Another phenomenon that so few people comprehend and grasp is that when the semiconductors ran out, a Ford or a GM or a Cadillac franchise, traditionally they were limited to selling 10% of their total inventory as used cars. But all of a sudden these major manufacturers cannot supply their franchisees with cars. They don't have the semiconductors to put in them to get them off the line. So they opened up the ability for franchisees to sell way more than 10% of used cars so that they could stay in business. Fair. And to sell new cars as used cars. No, no, just to sell to sell a higher proportion of their sales that that be allowed to be used cars. Uh, okay, that makes sense. enough new cars. Right. And, and Danielle, let me just quickly inject for the audience that during 2020 and 2021, the first sort of canary in the coal mine for inflation was used car prices, used car prices. They're up 20% month over month. So that's where we were in 2021. Where are we now? Uh, falling at a record rate, down ten percent year over year. I mean, it looks like it looks like a roller coaster. It looks like a looks like a, a the chart that you used to get graded on in college. That's what it looks like, and we, we've had a full reversal. And and you're right, used cars, even though I think they're only four percent of the CPI, they were the biggest driver of inflation. The biggest. It's hard to do when you're that small of a proportion, but and yet. So anyway, so you've got these franchisees and these, these, you know, these guys in the finance office, they don't know how to sell used cars. They know how to sell new cars. And that means extended warranties. That means all of these whistles and bells that actually provide profit. So you've got used cars being sold for 130, 140% loan to values because they put all of these things on the back end of a, of a, of a Jeep Grand Cherokee that's already got 60, 70,000 miles on it. So if you Google right now, after we finish, Google how to get rid of your car. There are articles out there explaining to people how to get rid of their cars. Just walk away from them because they're not, they'll, ne they'll never be able to refinance them. The payments are too high and their loans have nothing to do with the value of the car. It's just incredible. And we're seeing delinquencies rise before the layoff cycle begins. And if you look across the board at, 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 at deep subprime and subprime, even though their average payments are north of $500, which makes no sense, but their delinquency rates are higher than what they were at the peak in 2009, 2010. And we haven't started the layoff cycle yet. You would think by looking at delinquency rates that we were already in recession, which we are, which is another story, but not if you look at it through the prism of unemployment. 
Danielle, it, it, you know, I've, I've done a fair number of these. It does take a lot to shock me, but I do think my jaw just dropped uh, because I was thinking when you said uh, people are walking away from their cars, that's something that happened in uh, 2007 with houses where you, you had someone, they were so underwater on a house, the collateral had plummeted, rates had skyrocketed because they had a teaser rate and, and there was a, you know, a, a lot of funny business going on there. And they just said, I'm done. You know, put, put the keys uh, uh, in the mailbox. Bye. And people are doing that to their cars now. That's Well, they're, because, because the forbearance period is finally over. Yeah. So it sounded like a really good idea in 2020 to buy the car. Now they're actually having to make the car payment. And they're like, wait a minute. No, 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 no. My rent's up. My grocery bill's up. You know, somebody made me come back to the office. I actually have to fill up the car with gasoline and drive it back and forth to work now. All the, 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 the budget has completely changed from when this individual first purchased the vehicle and they haven't had to make a payment until just recently. And now they're like, whoa, 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 whoa. I didn't sign up for this. So it's changed for people buying the cars that, that economics has changed for the banks who are lending against the cars. It's a completely different environment as well. Back in 2020 and 2021, used car prices were rising. And if you lend money against collateral that goes up, it tends to be a good loan even if even if uh, interest rates are at zero and uh, you know the fed had bought a ton of debt banks were flush with cash uh with reserves which you know reserves are not uh deposits people banks make deposits out of thin air when they make a loan but they they were doing really well and they were it was it was time to to lend and and you know lending which uh, bank lending which had been in a you know kind of secular decline like after the great financial crisis we were seeing the highest levels of lending that we've seen uh, um since after after the crisis so yeah how are the banks thinking about it um you know the big banks just reported their, their earnings uh earlier this week and then also you mentioned uh, before we started this call that there was some hiding of the losses. Tell me, tell me what you mean by that. Because whenever someone says hiding losses, my, my antenna just go up. So um, <laughs> every single bank that reported, even Bank of America, in fact, especially Bank of America, dramatically increased increase their loan loss provisions. Dramatically. The most dramatic of all of them is the biggest auto lender in the country, Ally Financial. Their stock fell 8% the day that they reported. They were like, whoa, where'd these delinquencies come from? And they increased their loan loss provision on a percentage basis of their auto loan book to 3.46%, which takes out whatever it was in 2009. So they're, they're, they're seeing what their peers are doing, which is hiding losses. So every week there are car auctions across America. And because repossessions have taken place, now lenders are sitting on these cars. So they take them to auction. Well, the loan says they owe $30,000. At auction, they're saying we can get you $22,000. So the bank is like, no, 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 no. I need the $30,000. I can't have this loss. So they say, okay, you know, we'll just wait till next week. Just pull it off and we'll send it back to auction next week after prices rise for used cars. <laughs> No, 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 this is this is the logic going on nationwide. Yeah. I used the metaphor, which may or may not make sense, that of of the original pig in the python, it's just the pig is gaining weight after the snake ate it. So oh. this massive overhang of inventory continues to grow on a weekly basis because the lenders don't want to recognize the loss on the loans. At some point. A regulator is going to come and say, why are you sitting on all of these really dusty old, you repossessed this car months ago. Why haven't you liquidated it? And, and at some point, which is what regulators did in the housing crisis, they're going to make them clean those loans off their books. And then, then we'll see used car prices fall. Oh, wait, they already are. More. And, and how big is the auto market? And, and what I'm really asking is, is it, what's the ability to to derail an American economy, let alone the global economy? Like the, the mortgage bubble in 2007 you know, was enough to really change a decade of the global economy and put, put GDP on a totally different trend line. Uh, auto is not as big as housing, but you know, how big is it and, and how systemic is this? You know, it's a $1.5 trillion uh, market, so it's not huge. It's a lot bigger than what it used to be. It's been the fastest growing area of consumer debt post-pandemic. 
What concerns me, though, is that the same lax lending standards that allowed people who otherwise would not qualify to buy car loans were used for regular old consumer consumer installment loans. Those delinquency rates are higher than car delinquency rates, as well as credit cards. So you have to look more holistically at the lending environment that the Federal Reserve created and the fact that, that so many people were able to access debt across the spectrum of, of households, including FHA loans. Hmm. So it's not, it's not a $3 trillion subprime market, but it's a $1.5 trillion market. But you have to look at that in addition to the $1 trillion in credit cards that are out there. In addition to, I don't have the exact figure in my head hmm. of what consumer installment, but we've done a lot of consumer, just little here and there loans to consumers. That's been its own niche industry because it was a great way to get yield. Mm -hmm. And uh, when a mortgage lender makes a loan, a lot of it goes into a mortgage-backed security. Same with car loans. They, they go into an asset-backed security, ABS. I know you've been following very closely the, the freezing that's been going on in that market. Uh, you know, It was a huge bull market in, in CLOs and, and ABS in 2020, 2021. But I'm, you know, you've been you've been writing about how it's harder to price those car loans and really sell those loans. So a company like um, uh, um, uh, Upstart Same or Firm, yeah. yeah, these big. Um, it was interesting. A few days ago, I saw uh, um, a securitization pulled for single-family rentals, and I went, "Oh, that canary was bright yellow." And that's in the securitization space. Part of what's at work here, and you've done some great interviews with some great guests, part of what's at work here is this darn reverse repo facility. And I'm, you're like, Danielle, you just did a whole big old non sequitur. Not really. Reserves are being depleted so much quicker through the QT, the quantitative tightening channel, that, that there's not enough balance sheet to back some of these deals. And that's why you're seeing so little activity in the primary market, um, asset-backed securities, commercial mortgage-backed securities. I mean, watch out. This stuff is going to get, re I mean, really, really, really ugly if the Fed continues to push because these markets were tested in 07 and the Fed was able to come in with its first quantitative easing, with, net, with zero interest rates. So the securitization markets were kept alive last time around. The Fed does not appear to want to keep this patient alive. They look like they're going to pull the cord. And that's going to rock the world of accessing finance. And when it comes to consumer debt, asset-backed securitization, and especially kicking the can down the road and refinancing commercial mortgage-backed securities, there's, I think, $52 billion in CMBS that has to be refinanced in the next 24 months. Um more than 50% is, is multifamily. And this is with very low interest coverage. So this is rickety stuff. I'm, 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 this is in the piece that I wrote up. I, I, I was quoting Trep. Some scary stuff going on. Hey, everyone. It's Jack here. Hope you're enjoying the show. Just wanted to let you know that today's episode is brought to you by Bittrex, a cryptocurrency exchange with a focus on security and dependability. Bittrex offers lightning-fast trade execution on over 150 different digital assets, and it's protected by security practices that lead the industry. If you want to venture into crypto, I want you using Bittrex. It's an original in the space and has all the tokens that you want to trade. So click the link in the description to learn more and tell them I sent you. Now, let's get back to the show. Prior to the great financial crisis, a lot of those mortgage-backed securities were known as private label, where you, you take your own risk. Uh, now, now it's a lot of it. The vast majority of it is agency, meaning it's it's guaranteed uh, by Fannie Mae or, or Ginnie Mae or, or, or some institution like that, a, a GSE. Um, so, what happens if there's huge credit losses on on CMBS, but you know they're, they're guaranteed by Fannie Mae? I mean, is Fannie Mae going to have to? What what happens there? <laughs> well, it's interesting you bring this up because there was this there was this obscure little article uh, about the cost to insure against defaults in that corner of the world you just described going through the roof. I mean, it kind of reminds you of you know look look credit suisse def credit default swaps same type a uh, parallel type of idea. Somebody out there is making the insurance more expensive. 
to protect against those potential future losses. Exactly what you described, even on the agency side. Wow, I uh, I, I didn't you know you rare, you rarely hear about the credit default swaps on securitized products just because that was kind of like the nuclear bomb that uh, caused the great financial crisis. But and so it's been shut down. But uh, yeah, that, that, that's really interesting. Danielle, on the capital market side, so the asset-backed securities, mm-hmm. that's kind of a winter in that market. I was stunned. Yes, Goldman, all the big banks, the Wall Street banks, they made a lot of money selling and buying and trading derivatives. So, oh, Danielle, you're worried about the price of oil. You're worried about this. Don't worry, I have a product for you. Made a lot of money doing that. But in, on pure old school investment banking, Raising debt, raising equity, SPACs, uh, that business is is in a winter as well. I mean, Goldman Sachs, I think, down something like 57% year over year, admittedly coming from a super high base that was a bubble. But still, yep. that's 57% less than a year. I mean, that's that's wild. Yeah, I, you know, I, I just tweeted out that, that there there isn't blood in the streets the way we think about it. It's more like medieval leeches. Um, because Deutsche Bank just announced that it was laying off, a, a, you know, a handful of investment bankers. And that's what we're seeing. We're seeing this investment banking revenue really dry up. And again, you know, the, the banks created lines of business out of thin air. It's kind of like China a decade ago. They were like having some kind of a debt crisis again. They're like, I know we'll create a municipal bond market. Well, Wall Street created all of these markets really out of thin air because money was so cheap. They're like, well, we'll just we'll just make this SPAC thing gigantic. And, 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 you know, the same phenomena is built up around single family rentals. There are bonds that are attached to these in, in the securitization market. I was just telling you that one was pulled. That that used to be a niche industry. Now it's its own cottage. It's, it's a, in, in the, and, and then there's private credit, which is 1.2. It's just incredible what Wall Street has created out of thin air since the pandemic. Danielle, if if I were to go back at a time machine after the great financial crisis, anytime there was a business slowdown and it looked like what we have now where, oh, okay, the, the, the capital market machine is slowing down, delinquencies are on the rise, collateral for, against loans is, is falling, lending standards are going down. You, you wrote about today about the, the senior loan officer survey that people are, are tightening their lending standards. I, if, cause I, because I have the benefit of hindsight, I could say, oh, I know what's going to happen. The Federal Reserve is going to do QE and lower rates and get the party started over again. Yep. Uh, are we in a different environment now? It sure does sound like it, and it sure does feel like it. And the bond market certainly does reflect that. I think one of the most incredible aspects of what we've seen so far is that nothing really has... We've seen onesies, twosies breaking. We've got distressed debt, which is... A thousand basis points north of a comparable treasury in the junk market. You know that's crawled up to the, the highest level since I think October of 2020. It's like 260 billion dollars as of um, as as of, as of last week. But we really haven't seen anything major kind of give, and that that alone, despite where we are, I mean three times faster tightening uh, cycle than we've seen since 1980. Every single time you see a major risk rally, it buys the Fed more time. And you have to ask yourself, because you know that certain aspects of inflation are coming down and they're coming down quickly, including housing, 40% of the CPI. So because we're seeing reversals, I go back to what you and I have spoken about before. Is the Fed actually trying to break the put? And are our markets giving them license, ironically, to do so because they keep rallying? And every time there's a rally, the Fed can tighten right into it. And the, the short-term interest rate futures susses that out. It's like, oh, uh, a rally in the S&P 500, the new terminal rate is 4%. Oh, another rally, 4.5%. Now we're at 5%. Uh, yeah. For all of spring of next year, uh, that re- yeah. really I mean, is you wild. You sound like somebody running a, a live auction. I've got four percent. Can I get four and a half percent? Five percent? Can I? I mean, it's just it's it's it's. But the problem is, there is still a lag. Lag tends yeah. to be eighteen, twenty-four months when it's like Alan Greenspan, seventeen, twenty-five basis point hikes in a row. The lag was very, very, very long and playing out, and then we had the great financial crisis. Now these are unusually large interest rate increases, and 
we've seen the lag compressed. I, I wrote it yesterday. The lag has been decimated, decimated. We're seeing monetary policy move through the markets and the economy at a very, very rapid pace, but there's still so much overvaluation out there that it's still not able to pull things down to where the Fed has to has to stop. It's incredible. What do you think of the risk that the data that is uh, sort of the blue chip data of GDP, industrial production, CPI, uh, the unemployment rate that will be that will be very lagging because even though the actual economy is deteriorating before our very eyes, the unemployment rate remains uh, low at three percent. GDP is only <laughs> released quarterly. Uh, the Case Shiller, you know, that, that, that those things are only reflect what would happen twelve months ago. And twelve months ago, the economy was slowing down, but it was not in the state it is now. So I'm going to walk you through the National Bureau of Economic Research scoring methodology. They score recessions based on the level of economic output. That's a dollar point. So what they look at is it's either going to be Q4 of 2021 or Q3 of 2022. One or the other is going to be the peak from which we start recession. As far as the NBER is concerned, my favorite uh, GDP modeler is a guy by the name of Ben Herzon. Uh, he was at Macroeconomic Advisors forever, and they were bought out by IHS. IHS was bought out by S&P Global. So now it's S&P Global's GDP model. So where he currently has his forecast, and he invented the damn model, so I follow him the most closely. Everybody else mimics him. Mm-hmm. Where he is, is currently right now is recession started January of 2022 based on a pure dollar basis. That includes his 2.4% increase in GDP growth in the third quarter and negative 1.1% in Q4. If you look at those four quarters based on his forecast, the National Bureau of Economic Research is going to go back and they wait a really long time to call recessions. They're going to go back in January of 2022 and you're going to say, but one of the biggest inputs is industrial production. Mm -hmm. And I'll say, yeah, that's, that's true. But what we're seeing in the Philly Fed outlook, the Empire, the, the, the Empire uh, State outlook, the equipment manufacturers outlook, the I mean, I'm, I'm digging down deep here. Their outlooks are worse than they were at the depths of the financial crisis. Their outlooks. Why is that? The supply chain disruption becoming undisrupted is making it to where all of the bottlenecks in manufacturing can finally be resolved. But what I'm hearing from my contacts in in the world of freight, in the world of manufacturing, is that people are actually paying penalties and canceling orders for equipment that they bought 12 months ago that was super delayed. They're like, we don't need it anymore. We're in recession. But that that means that you're going to see a robust industrial production figure because factories are playing catch up. Mm. Because they finally have that one missing piece they they needed on hand. So that shows up as a positive for industrial production, which is a major GDP input. But the hangover is going to be a bitch. Excuse my French. And that's what we're seeing in the outlooks in manufacturing surveys being at the lowest on. These are six-month outlooks at the lowest on record. So it, and, and as far as, as the unemployment is concerned, and by the way, you're seeing it. The state of Indiana... I follow the state of Indiana like most closely. Gross state product in terms of the the manufacturing input, the cyclical leading input, uh, Indiana has the highest intensity of uh, manufacturing input, 28%. More than Michigan, more than Illinois, more than any of your typical, what you would think of as being Rust Belt states. Indiana. Indiana is one of the few states where we've consistently seen week after week rising initial unemployment claims. What we're not seeing in in unemployment claims, which the Fed is looking at, is the fact that the layoff cycle started at the top of the income ladder. Layoff cycles don't do that. Layoff Mm -hmm. cycles start at the bottom of the income ladder where people couldn't get people to work at fast food restaurants or or, or wait tables. Those jobs are sticky and they're not going away. The jobs at the highest part of the income ladder, however, there, we're seeing th- those headlines are not a figment of our imagination. Facebook's going to lay off 12,000 employees. They're also going to pay them all severance. 
So you don't see, you don't see this layoff wave in the official unemployment rolls because they're giving them huge golden parachutes. So this is so unique. And Jay Powell's a lawyer. He understands the markets. He understands real data. He's mad at his staff because they did this transitory thing to him. He actually knows what's going on. So I go back to, then why is he raising interest rates if he knows the economy is slowing? Well, maybe he wants to break the book. Yeah. Tell us about that, Danielle. You worked in the Fed. Um, the Fed has an access to extraordinary data sets. And the economics profession broadly, but also specifically within the Fed, uh, was wrong in 2021. That inflation was muted. You know, We all saw the op-eds. Oh, 5% it's the top. Oh, now 6% is the top. It, it, it wasn't. Um, yep. So... To, to, to what degree is the process different? What Who was Jay Powell listening to in 2021 that now he's like, I don't want to even take their call? Well, I think he, I, I think the ones he's not listening to anymore are the, the, the people who used to say, you know, Danielle, why are you looking at the Challenger hiring series? You know, it's only been around for two years. Of course, this is years ago. Now we all follow it. It's like, oh my God, look at, look at holiday hiring according to Challenger. It's collapsed compared to 2021. But they... Fed staffers, PhDs in economics, they follow long history data series that can be seasonally adjusted and somehow, some way fit into a model and mislead the chair of the Fed down a wrong path. So I, he's taking um, his chief lieutenant, I would say, is Christopher Waller. I listened to him the most closely after Powell's. Um, and he was one of the first people to say the Fed should not be in the business of buying mortgage-backed securities when he was, I think, all of a month on the Federal Open, uh, on the Federal Reserve Board. So I think he takes his counsel, and I think he takes more counsel now um, from outside the Federal Reserve as well. Because, again, the staff misled him because they weren't seeing inflation manifest in a way that hadn't, that, that hadn't been possible before because the transmission mechanism of delivering credit to individuals had crushed the bank as the middleman and you were just giving people money directly through, through direct deposit. That was, uh. it's exactly what monetary policy used to do, but it used to have to happen through the banks. And what the fiscal policy did was bypass the banking system, give it directly to the people. Their models should have been able to account for the fact that that was going to create instantaneous inflation. And yet they were still staring at the banking channel. Right. So, so you're, uh, they were looking at loan growth. Uh, so, so when people look at monetary, the monetary aggregates like M2, that is so heavily influenced by like bank reserves. So when there's QE, it explodes higher like it did in 2020. And now I think it's falling slightly, or at least the pace of growth is, is basically zero. Um, but they're globally, looking at- Globally, it's negative 5% right now. If you add wow. up all of the M2s around the world, M2 here is about to slip into uh, negative territory. It's extraordinary. And people are like, but there's still money in the system. And I'm like, if you're not following the Delta, you don't get the bottom line. Yes, oh, there's still money in the system. That's, that's funny. But you're saying the governments were giving them, uh, giving people money in 2020 and, and the Fed did not really take that into account. That's interesting. Danielle, one thing uh, that is the a small ray of sunshine in the giant rainstorm that you and I are walking through right now in this interview is the uh, amount of money that people have on their bank accounts. Um, bank of America uh, had, had a, a chart in their, in their earnings showing that, uh, you know, for people basically with, with incomes between, or uh, with money in their, their account between $2,000 and $20,000 in their, in their account, uh, how much money, how much more money they have now than they did in 2019. And it was anywhere from 2% to, excuse me, two times more uh, to five times more. So what do you get with, with this cocktail where, all the leading indicators that, that you follow like a hawk are look horrible. However, people still on average have more money in their bank account. So uh, that's kind of a cushion mechanism. What, what do you think? Well, it's interesting because Bank of America is looking at kind of the lowest income earner and saying they've got a lot more cushion than they used to have. And therefore, they saved a lot of the fiscal stimulus dollars. What Brian Moynihan, due deference, is not looking at is the 25% increase in the food assistance program that was implemented on October the 1st of 2021. And we've now subsequently seen, depending on which month you look at, between 17 and 28% additional increase for the cost of living implemented October 1, 2022. So we're talking about $1,000 a month for a family of four. Uh, I mean, these are 
it's not a small subsidy by any means. And you came through an income tax refund season where the final stimulus bill that was passed allowed you to not pay taxes for your unemployment benefits. So we just had the mother of all income tax refund seasons. And in addition to that, your businesses have been able to deduct their payroll taxes. So we've seen business, and this was the first chart in the quill that you saw yesterday. We've seen business income taxes just wipe out history, period, end. Billions, and $211 billion and counting of business income tax refunds because there was this little footnote inside the last stimulus package that said, if you can show that your business was, uh, was interrupted for just a moment in time, you get to deduct up to $28,000 per employee of payroll taxes and, and take it back in a refund. There is still a ton of stimulus money flowing through the U.S. economy, which makes it even more remarkable that we're even seeing delinquency rates rise at all. But it's because of where it's going, who it's going to. It's not going to the people in the middle. The lowest income earners are benefiting. The highest income earners are benefiting. But the people in the middle are absolutely getting just screwed. Yes, but the, the highest income earners, to the extent that they have assets such as uh, you know housing and stocks, and bonds and bonds, they're, they're getting screwed as well. So, so, you know, in, in most business cycle slowdowns, unfortunately, you know, it is the lowest income earners who, who uh, bear the losses the first in this different environment. Uh, I mean, on the face of it, it sounds like a somewhat of a better thing where it's, you know, people who are more able to, to bear the burden of a recession. Uh, they're the ones who, who are, who are bearing that burden. Um, what does that mean? Uh, um, yeah. Is, is this, is this going to be a, a, a different than a typical recession if if it's uh you know the, the wealth the reverse wealth effect on steroids plus the the layoffs are happening at in engineering and finance and technology jobs yeah we're certainly not seeing um the, the mass wave of destruction but again I, I i go back to the the, the poor middle income earner because they're not it's their boss that got this massive income tax refund and it's the the people who make less money than them who are getting the other subsidies from the government still. People in the middle are really, really getting hammered. And the highest income earners also dictate consumption in this country. So we, we, we can discount them, but not that much. But you are correct. The change agent and the reason that even if the MBER scores the recession back to January of 2022, the delta is the midterms. So the candy store is closed. And people don't get that. There's not going to be an extension in 2023 of the 2022 income tax refund. It's just not happening. Not with not with the GOP running the House of Representatives. So, it, the, because Joe Biden cannot executive order these things, and these were in this was in legislation passed by a Congress that will not pass the same legislation again. Not happening. So. We are on an extended sugar high, and that's why even if we are in recession, it doesn't feel like it for so many of us, and the airplanes are full, and I don't get it, and I'm like, that's because small and medium business owners just got millions of dollars in tax refunds, and they're spending the money. I get it, but that doesn't mean that we were not possibly in a recession in January that's going to get worse hmm. next year. Interesting. Danielle, to pivot entirely, pun intended, uh, the bond, the sovereign bond markets uh, globally are, are have a buyer's strike that they're under uh, assault. And a particularly Bank of England, uh, the, the UK gilt market yield exploded uh, a little under a month ago, causing the Bank of England to have, have to intervene. Mm -hmm. And people are you know, looking at charts such as the move index, uh, charts showing that treasury liquidity is increasingly poor. How would you gauge the sell-off in U.S. treasuries, U.S. sovereign bond market, where, yes, mark-to-market year-to-date, the losses are historic, uh, uh, you know, going back to the 1700s, uh, particularly that they've fallen alongside stocks, that is uh, of note as well. But you're, you're not getting, you know, it's 3.9% on one day, 3.92% on another day. It's, it's steadily going, selling off, and it can be, you know, a lot of losses for people who have bonds, but you're not seeing that total collapse in liquidity like you saw in, in the UK. Yeah, what are you thinking there? And uh, how, how do you, 
you know, how bad do you think it has to get before the Federal Reserve will will do what the Bank of England uh, did and provide some sort of liquidity facility? Well, I think that there is going to be uh, there is increased appetite, and I think we will see the Treasury come in and buy less liquid um, older Treasuries out of the market to try mm-hmm. and, and and then refill them. In fact, we saw we saw with the, with, with the funding schedule that there's nothing south of uh, seven years that, that's going to come out there. They're trying to front load the, the front end of the curve and and provide some of that much needed liquidity. That said. There have been some days where we've seen the tenure move 11 basis points or it's it's yes, it has steadily increased. On the other hand, we've seen days where we've seen really big moves that flash a warning about how illiquid the market really is. And I, I think that there is there's a lack of understanding and appreciation for how little bonds trade further out the curve because so many of them are owned by sellers who would never get rid of them. So I I think we are starting to see, I I think we'll see a meltdown in, in European sovereign bond markets before we see one in ours. I think that that's kind of, if you're, if you're saying, you know, yen sterling, I think next is Euro. And therefore, you'll you'll see it play out uh, in that market. And that's going to be really complicated because there's no European sovereign debt instrument as there is a treasury or a gilt or a JGB. Um, but I, I do think that, that treasury market liquidity is highly problematic. The banks have not utilized a facility that the Fed's created to try and um, and provide more liquidity. There is a stigma that's attached to this facility that's been created, the standing repo facility. It's not had any uptake. So the Fed's got its, its, its hands full in terms of trying to prepare for what they may be creating by being so aggressive with their rate hikes because it's, it's Fed policy that's going to create this crisis. Mm. So the current terminal uh, Fed funds rate, the highest the market thinks the Fed will go is 5% in about April of 2023. Mm-hmm. A month ago, we, we were talking, Danielle, and four, it was 4%. 4% seemed, oh my God, this is ridiculous. And now it's 5%. I mean, obviously 6% is possible, but where are you thinking of sort of some sort of ceiling where it's like, if, you know, if the Fed gets to this level, pigs are going to be flying because 5% is, is now very possible, which was unimaginable a year ago. So, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm stealing a chapter from Jeff Snyder, but I'm, I'm following right now the Italian bond yield compared to the German bond yield. And if that continues to gap out, then we're going to have a collateral issue on our hand that has nothing to do with credit quality that's going to force the Fed to stop. And we're already at levels that are where they were when there was a euro crisis in 2011. So the market is already telling you that an event is building. The move index ain't shutting up anytime soon. And we are, that is the one I'm always asked if you're on a desert island, you could only have one, one button on your Bloomberg. What would it be? And the move index, because it, it, it broadcasts rate volatility, rates volatility, but it also broadcasts when, when rates are bleeding into the broader credit markets, even though it might be good credit, it doesn't matter if liquidity is drying up to, 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 a, to a, a big enough extent and quantitative tightening is an influence, it's just a really quiet, nefarious influence, but it's there. Yeah. And, and it's running in the background. And, you know, when Bernanke and we'll get to that, don't worry. When Bernanke, uh, you know, f- first launched QE, it was, oh, this is something we're going to do extra because zero interest rates is not enough and we, we can't go negative. So we have to do quantitative easing. But you said you said that uh, the spread between uh, Italian uh, uh, bonds and German bonds is widening. I think, maybe correct me if I'm wrong, but isn't the solution to that quantitative easing not, not cutting rates? However, by this Bernanke logic, you can't do quantitative easing unless you're at zero. That's right. And we're raising interest rates. So the Bernanke <laughs> doctrine is falling apart. And it was false to begin with. 
and I think that that's another, so Bernanke doctrine, um, this is, this is documented in my book, Fed Up, uh, at the 2007 Jackson Hole, pretty much in violation of, of the Federal Reserve Act. He brought together a few of his chief lieutenants, Yellen was there, Dudley was there, Sack was there, but he brought together in, in, in a room and they, they, they blueprinted out what the Fed would do if, if what they saw potentially occurring in 2007 ended up being, oh, I don't know, Lehman. And what they determined was that, that the Fed funds rate would have to go to zero as a prerequisite to launching large-scale asset purchases. Flawed mm. logic, didn't matter. It was what was agreed to behind closed doors in violation of the Federal Reserve Act of 1913 um, because there wasn't the full Federal Reserve Board, Federal Open Market Committee present to make such a magnificently gigantic decision that would affect the rest of the world's monetary policy thinking. And yet here we are today with $750 billion a month of global quantitative tightening, rates rising, and the differential between Boone's and Italian sovereigns screaming, QE, we need QE. And yet we're going the opposite direction. So this is a real-time live experiment. I dare say they should have held off on that Nobel thing. But what do I know? We, we got to go there, Danielle. Yeah. What do you, so uh, former mm-hmm. Fed Chair Ben Bernanke was awarded the Nobel Prize in economics for his work in – uh, was it in forecasting recessions or, or treating recessions? I, I don't know exactly. You, you can correct me. His work on what the Great you, Depression and yeah, yeah. What what did you think? What do you think of that that prize? Uh, I think the prize was premature, um, because he has been quietly kind of the, the director of Greenspan did not want to go to a two percent inflation target, right? The 2% inflation target was, that was Ben Bernanke, that was all Ben Bernanke. And it created the shield behind which Fed policy could hide to pursue QE forever. It was the 2% target. So Daniel, just just to clarify for for me as well as the audience, uh, before Bernanke, there was no 2% target. So the idea was that inflation would be marginally above zero, but not 2%. So he raised the bar. Did he or or lowered the bar? He institutionalized the two percent target, and then quantitative easing because of the transmission mechanism can't force banks to lend. So you didn't get the inflation. This was January two thousand twelve. Was when the two percent target went into effect, and between then and the pandemic, they managed to hit that two percent level in eleven separate months, over a decade. So Greenspan was right. Don't impose the two percent. Greenspan stood and refused to allow that two percent target to be put in. I never sit sit around saying today I'm going to wake up and defend Alan Greenspan. It doesn't happen. However, he stopped that target, and the target was the first domino that then led to zero interest rate policy, that then led to quantitative easing, that has now led to a massive experiment started by Ben Bernanke that we don't know how it's going to end, and yet they prematurely give him this big award. I just think it's a little too soon, people. Too soon, but also if if you know, Ben and Bernanke wrong. saved the global economy in 2008 and 2009, why not award it to him? If he did, why not award it to him in 2010? Like, What has he done since he left the Federal Reserve to sort of merit, is it, is it, is it purely his academic work that? Yes, I suppose so. And I've watched his academic work come out and I, he's published a new book and blah, 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 blah. I, I get that. Maybe I, maybe, maybe I have PTSD because I was inside the Fed when he was doing what he was doing. But it, it, it doesn't, it, it, if you are gauging that award based on the policies envisioned and implemented by somebody who's now put the global financial system and the global economy on on a on a on a more fragile footing than it's ever been it's it's easy enough to connect the dots and i'm not the only person out there saying that this was not the right move at all do you think jay powell is making the right move right now if he can break the put without blowing up the world then more power to him because it was Jay Powell in October 2012 when he was four months, five months, uh, a rookie on the board, brand new, wet behind the ears, who said 
it's going to be really difficult one day when we try and exit this policy. And he knew it then. He recognized it then. And so he's finally trying to exit policy a decade later. And if he can really do that, then you won't have too big to fail institutions. You won't have Wall Street making monetary policy anymore. And that would be extraordinary. But to me, right now at least, Jay Powell is becoming a little bit too aggressive. You can say to yourself, zero interest rate policy is dead. But you know what? We've got the Fed funds rate up to 4%. The new floor is is 2% and we're going to stop there. They've got Mm. enough leeway to do that now, or at least they will certainly by the December meeting. It's already baked into the cake. Why they're continuing to be more and more aggressive as real-time data show inflation is cooling off, um, it, it almost implies that they're trying to create a systemic event. So if he wants to have a controlled demolition and have the 20% of U.S. firms that are zombies go away one at a time and free up capacity for longer-term economic growth, if that's his goal, and to make monetary policy independent again, you cannot create a systemic event that forces the Fed back into the market in the same way that the Bank of England was forced to action. You cannot do that. And he's 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 being so aggressive that he might end up having had a noble intention and blowing it up. Right. And just building on that, if you want to get rid of zero interest rate policy, you can go up to 4% and then glide down to 3% and the economy can take then 3%. But if you go up to 6%, it's possible that you screw things up so badly that it requ- the gov- you need zero rates again to sort of get out of there. Well, you wouldn't need zero rates because they're broken, but, but the markets would, would scream for it. Yes. They, and, 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 and you'd have to also then defy the Nobel laureate by saying you don't have to have interest rates at the zero bound to engage in quantitative easing. And that's, that needs to be put to bed. Do you, but do you think it will be put to bed? Do you think that when there is a power pivot, putting aside liquidity operations, facilities, all sort of that, do you think that uh, there will be no QE unless rates are at zero, which it sounds like they're not going to be? So rates will be the channel. That When there's pivot, it will be with rates, not – yeah. That, that's, that's what it looks like. But again, we don't know what markets are going to demand. We, we just we, – we don't. I mean they're – Right now, the the entire global financial system is in a massive state of flux, and nobody knows how much money China does or doesn't have to rectify the situation. I don't I don't bring in China, you know, as 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 a red herring. I bring it in because China has ridden to the rescue for the last few decades. When these events have have occurred, they've pumped as much liquidity into the global financial system as the Fed has. So they've kind of been partners in that sense. I don't know that China's going to go there again. I don't know that China doesn't want to see this grand experiment blow up. And even though they don't have the financial wherewithal to become the economic superpower right now, it certainly won't help them long term if the United States shoots itself in the head by being too aggressive with monetary policy. So I want to see Jay Powell succeed. I want to see Jay Powell break the Fed put. I don't want to see Jay Powell create a systemic event and have the global financial system implode. <laughs> Me too. I, I also I also I want that. Um, Danielle, well, thanks so much for joining us. People should uh, check out Quill Intelligence, your book uh, uh, Fed Up, and on Twitter they can find your work at Demartino Booth. Uh, yep. My final question: could, could you just either sum up your thoughts, or if you have a closing thought uh, you want to, to leave the audience with? So um, we we didn't talk very much about it, but you know. In, in less than three weeks, we've got midterm elections here. And all we talk about is, gee, where, where did this inflation come from? Well, it came from fiscal policy being monetized by the Fed. So it's very important to keep your eye on what's happening with politics, because that is going to be a massive determinant going forward, 2023-2024, of what happens with the U.S. and global economy. Yes. And s- s- sorry, uh, just this, the Strategic Petroleum Reserve is, is being drawn down. Some people are calling that the Strategic Midterm Reserve. Do you, do you think that that could stop after the election? You know, if, if, 
Yeah, of course. And 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 I think the federal courts are going to some federal court is is going to say that that the student loan forgiveness thing is also it, it's unconstitutional. I don't think it matters. I think that they're just trying to bide their time and get through the midterm elections. It, you know, if, if Biden had any sense, he would get rid of the teleprompter and just just say, I'm just doing this for politics, folks. That's it. And that way he wouldn't accidentally say that we were at war. Wouldn't Congress hadn't declared it or whatever else, whatever else else. Somebody should just come clean and say, of course, this is politicking. It's going away in a few days. Mm -hmm. Wow. Well, Danielle, it's been a total pleasure having you on. Um, Thank you so much for sharing your insights. Thanks for your time, Jack. Thank you so much for watching. A few housekeeping items before I let you go. Subscribe to the BlockWorks Macro YouTube channel so you don't miss another episode of Forward Guidance. Uh, You can find Forward Guidance, the podcast you just listened to, on your favorite podcast app. That's Apple Podcast, Spotify, Overcast, Podbean. Uh, That's Podbean as in, on this pod, I've been saying that the Fed pivot is still far away. In addition, please check out today's sponsor. It really helps the show. Link is in the description. Finally, BlockWorks is looking for a video editor. Go to blockworks.co slash careers to learn more. Thanks for watching.